your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to start off with a question this morning. What do you think is the most controversial issue in church history? So think about that. As you think through the history of the church, if you have taken a class or read some books, what do you think is the issue that is debated the most, people have fought over, some even have died for this doctrine? Well, it should be pretty obvious. It's up there on the screen. And it would be, I contend, the Lord's table, communion. Let me give you a few examples of that. Do you know the rhyme, three blind mice? See how they run? Did we even teach that to kids anymore? I don't know. Probably shouldn't, okay? They all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off the tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? Do you know that? Raise your hand if you know that. Okay, okay. I'm like, am I the only one? I don't think so. Well, that rhyme was likely made up about three men whom the Catholic Church considered blind to this doctrine. These three men were Protestant ministers in England, Thomas Cramner, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. These men are known as the Oxford Martyrs. If you go to England, you actually can see a memorial honoring them and their martyrdom. In, in, uh, sorry, in 1555, 1555, they were burned alive by the Catholic queen known as Bloody Mary. And what was that doctrine that they were allegedly blind to, the three blind mice? So I guess the farmer's wife was Bloody Mary. Well, it was communion. At least that's what they were accused of. The Catholic Church believed at that time, and still believes, in something called transubstantiation, which means when the priests praise over the bread and wine, those elements actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ. And the Catholic Church maintained that doing the Mass each week was re-sacrificing Christ for the sins of the living and the dead. And by partaking of that Mass, you are securing forgiveness for your sins. But those men, and many other men and women, but those Oxford martyrs, they opposed that teaching. And many others by the Catholic Church, frankly, but that was like the key one right there, that the Queen and that the Catholic Church wanted them to denounce they wanted them to denounce their own view, I should say, the Protestant view. And so the, the, the Catholic view was that it was through works, that it was through communion that someone could earn grace from God. But the biblical Protestant view was salvation is not of your religious works, but it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And so in regard to the Lord's table, the Oxford martyrs, they believed, Romans 6.10, that reads, Christ died once for all. Not each week at the Mass. Interesting enough, I preached yesterday at a service. And it was probably a, a room much of this size. And it was packed full of people. And most of the people in there were Catholic. I had a Catholic a priest sitting right in the front row. And I preached Romans 6.10. Christ died once for sin. 
and the gospel was proclaimed. And they believed, and we believe, that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by taking communion. They believed it is a memorial to remember what Christ has done. And for that, those men were executed. So the irony is, the three blind mice were not actually spiritually blind. Those who killed them were the farmer's wife, if you want to say it that way. So on the, on the one hand, you have the church, the, the Catholic church, I should say, that was contending for some type of salvific grace ministered through communion. And so the biblical Protestant church opposed that. But also, even within the Protestant church, communion was a debated issue. John Calvin was a reformer. Do you realize he was run out of his church by prominent people in the city who, who wanted unbelievers to be able to take the Lord's table in their church? And because he said, no, it's only for believers, and I wouldn't let people who are unrepentant take the Lord's table, he was run out. One of the greatest minds in church history, in American history, Jonathan Edwards, was removed from his pulpit because he as well didn't believe that unbelievers should take partake of communion. So my point is, through the centuries, faithful Christians, faithful believers, believers who believe the Bible is true, they have contended for the faith, and one of those issues was communion. So we're talking about worship matters in the local church from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through chapter 14. And this week we're in chapter 11. And the next matter we're dealing with is the Lord's table. The Lord's table matters in worship. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 34, Ken just read that for us. Those verses teach that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you must gather with the Lord's church and partake of his table, and it's according to his instructions. I think that's really the idea of these verses. This is the Lord's church, so you must gather with the Lord's church. This is the Lord's table, so you must partake of the Lord's table, but it's in obedience to his command. Therefore, you have to follow his instructions. So this morning, we're going to look at the instructions that Christ has given us as we gather around the Lord's table. We're only going to deal with two of these topics this week, or two of these points this week, but we're going to look at four instructions Christ gives to us. Really, I, I look at it as where we set our attention, where we look, that we are to put our attention on Christ and on what he wants us to put our attention on. So as we gather with the Lord's church at his table, we're going to see that we are to look around, look around at each other and be unified with the Lord's church, to look back at the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ, to look up to his soon return, and then to look within and examine ourselves considering the Lord's judgment. Let's pray and ask God to bless this text and minister this to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word speaks to us still today. And there are many who have gone before us who have contended for faith in your word. So, Lord, may we be 
that remnant on this earth who are faithful to you by grace. Lord, give us wisdom and grace. Help us to understand how we can trust you and be the church that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we're going to look, as we gather with the Lord's church at his table, we are to look around. We are to unify with the Lord's church. In American culture, we value the individual. It's my rights. It's my self-expression. It's my life. And sometimes we can take that individualism in America, and we can bring that into the church, and we can even bring it to the Lord's table. And many people look at the Lord's table as just me and Jesus. But actually, that's not the scriptural view of the Lord's table. We actually are to look around and see that we are unifying with the church as we partake of the Lord's table together. Paul has been dealing with unity in the local church throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And so he's dealt with the Lord's table a number of times. Would you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? So you're going to have to have your fingers ready this morning. If you have a paper Bible, you're going to flip back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to briefly show you how these instances lead up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians Corinthians 5 deals with a man in the church who needs to be disciplined out. He needs to be removed from the church. He's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And so he's sinning. And Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 5 that the Lord's table should remind us to take sin seriously. We are not to harbor sin in our own life or in the church. So look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. I'm not going to read through the whole text, just pick a couple things. But 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven. And so he's speaking of this one in the church who's unrepentant. And the point is, remove him from membership. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, speaking of the Lord's table, not with the old leaven, speaking, speaking of us harboring sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, so the Lord's table reminds us to be unified as a church in purity and holiness. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The next time we see the Lord's table is in 1 Corinthians 10. And here, Paul taught the Lord's table was a way for the church to testify of our unity. Again, I'm just going to pick out one verse in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 17. Paul wrote, Because there is one bread, so figuratively speaking of the one bread of Christ, Christ, and literally they would use a loaf of bread. So one bread, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. So we're diverse, but we're one church. We're one in Christ. For we all partake of the one bread. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so the Lord's table throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is a time for us to be unified together in purity as one body. In fact, when Jesus finished doing the Lord's table, he had what we call the high priestly prayer. 
in John chapter 17. And he prayed to the Father that the church would be one. He says that they may be one even as we, even as the triune God are one. So you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three persons, but yet they are united as one being, literally one God. And we as a church are to be so united as one body. It's like we are one like the Trinity is one. So the church glorifies God when we as a local church unite together as one in love, in forgiveness, in care, in compassion, in discipleship, in grace. But if, you, if you've been paying attention in 1 Corinthians, you recognize this church was not united, were they? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Notice, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So verse 2, he did commend them. But here he says, I'm not going to commend you. Why? Why did he rebuke them? Because they were abusing the Lord's table. Because they were living in selfish disunity. So verse 17, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's like their church services did more harm than good for the gospel. It was like he was saying, why don't you just shut the doors and not meet? Because what you're doing is harming the gospel. It's harming the name of Christ. And, and friends, that can happen in a church. Why did he say that to them? Well, because they were acting more like Satan with division than God who loves and reconciles. Look at verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part. Now here's a question. Where did Paul hear this report about division? So one more time, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very beginning of this letter. I want to show you the source of Paul's information 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul starts off the letter by writing, I appeal to you, I beg you, please, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that you're one, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So Paul is saying, listen, church, as a local church, this is a local church in Corinth. You guys should be united together in love and united as one. But verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So who reported the division? It was Chloe, Chloe's people. Now let me ask this question. Think about this. Was Chloe gossiping to the Apostle Paul? And I would answer that no, and the reason why is if you were in our study in November in 3 John, we saw that the scripture taught this, that I believe gossip is this. Gossip is speaking 
for listening to corrupt words about another person when you are not a part of the Matthew 18 solution. So you're, you're speaking or you're listening to corrupt words about another person, but you're not a part of the solution. So the question I have in this context was, Paul, a part of the solution for the division in the church of Corinth? What was the answer? Absolutely he was, right? Often there are times when there's rumors spreading in the congregation and about people and situations, and, and that is gossip. It can corrupt. But there are also times when someone that's responsible, someone that has responsibility needs to be talked to. For instance, if you have a child in this church or we see a child in this church that's doing something wrong, who is the responsible one we should talk to? The parents, right? So, so there's that kind of context. But even in the local church, there are those who are tasked with helping to have clarification or maybe even reconciliation. And I would say those in general are those who are in leadership in the church. So Paul was told that there were divisions. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And the, the divisions were not doctrinal. They weren't about the, the deity of Christ or the authority of Scripture. They were personal. They were personal quarrels. They were disputes of opinions. They were arguments over who was important and who wasn't important. And this can happen in the home. This can happen, and this happens, I should say, in the home. This happens in family context. This happens at work. This also can happen in the local church. Satan loves to target God's people and divide them. God wants us, though, to unite. And that's one of the reasons that we partake of the Lord's table. We unite around Christ together as one, as we celebrate and remember his death for us. Now glance down to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 17. I want, to, I want you to see a key phrase in here that calls for church unity. Look at verse 17. Notice the phrase, when you come together. Or you could say, when you gather together. That phrase is repeated five times in this passage. Verse 17, look at it in verse 18. Go down to verse 20, you can see it again there. Verse 33, then again in verse 34. Do you see the repetition? Do you, this is important, right? When we see something like this being repeated, and, and literally that word is a compound word in Greek. I mean, soon, that's with, and that's erkomai, which is to gather. So it's gathering with, gathering with, coming together with. And who was it that was, was gathering together? Look at verse 18. Defines this gathering here. When you come together, what does it say? As a church. So, so this is not the universal church. This is gathering as a local church. This is a local church church, which means assembly, a local gathering of people. So the gathered people gather each week. You can see another key word that points this out in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Notice the word among you. I hear there are divisions among you. Verse 19, you see this word again, factions among you, genuine among you. It's like that word among you is found 15 times in 1 Corinthians. And why am I talking about this? Why do I point out these little details like that? 
It's because it's so important for us to identify that this is a covenant community of people. These are people living in, in covenant with God, because they're believers in Jesus Christ, and in covenant with each other. And so that's what we're talking about here. This is what we also call church membership. It's a commitment you make to love one another, to be one together. So this is within the local church. And let me ask this question. When were they meeting? Well, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says that they were meeting the first day of the week and gathered to break bread together. So we, we gather at the Lord's table, and when we do that, we should look around. Look at the faces of people around us and say, we, we want to unite together with them. Now, if there's not unity in the church, if there are problems in the church, that's not just a problem with each other. It's actually a problem with God. And let me ask us to think through this. Should we expect there to be problems in the church? Should we expect that there's going to be some type of maybe sin sometimes in the church family? And to answer that, maybe let me ask it this way. Do you ever have problems in your own family? And the answer is obviously yes, right? We're, we do have problems. We have times when there are times when we sin against each other and we do things that aren't the best towards each other, maybe sometimes even wrong each other. And he says in verses 18 and 19 that we should expect that. Verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. That's bad, right? But verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, if you're new to Lighthouse, let me inform you on something. And that is, we are a bunch of sinners in here. We confess that. We believe we're sinners saved by grace. We believe that Christ, by his spirit, is conforming us to be more like Christ which means that we're growing each day into the image of Christ. But that means we're also probably still going to have some problems. Sometimes I might say something to you or someone else might say something to you that, you know, you don't really like and you get upset by. Maybe even it's a sin against you. The question in God's family is not if we're going to have problems. What's the question? Are you going to deal with the problem God's way? And what do God's people do when they have problems, when, when someone sins against them or they do something wrong against someone else? What do Christians do? We seek reconciliation. We seek to love, to forgive. Literally, we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that's each of our jobs. We are to reconcile. Paul Tripp wrote, about the problems that can take place in a local church. Let me read what he wrote. He wrote that at times in a local church, you might be misunderstood, falsely accused, unfairly judged. When that happens, you can choose to carry a list. You can give way to the temptation to punish the other person. You can choose disappointment to become distance for affection to become dislike, for a ministry partnership to morph into a search for an escape. And that 
is not what God desires for his church. And as a church, what should we seek? Peace, forgiveness, love, reconciliation. What if, though, there's someone in our church that doesn't want reconciliation? You know, they want to fracture the church. Maybe they sent out a call or a text or an email and they're upset about something and they're trying to get people on their side. They're trying to put a wedge between you and maybe someone else in the church. And if they don't get traction, that person maybe even splinters off and leaves. How should we think about all that? Well, how does verse 19 say we're to think about that? Verse 19, it says that those factions must happen. Actually, if you read that verse, he's saying it's what God intends to happen. Now, how is that? Does that make any sense to us? I mean, read verse 19. Paul writes in there, that these things must happen in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, or you could say approved. So it's not that God approves of that person's sin of division, but it's that God uses that person to expose the true hearts of people in the church, to reveal who people are truly committed to. Are they truly committed to loving and following Christ or are they committed to themselves? It reveals. There was a situation that I was involved in South Carolina where I was sitting in the office of a pastor of the church. And so there was the pastor, there's myself. And there was a lady that was an employee of the church. She was overseeing a ministry. And she came with her husband to this meeting. And so there was the four of us in this meeting. And there was some division that was taking place in the ministry that she was overseeing. There, were, there was gossip taking place. There was speaking negatively about other people. There was some, just some wrong things that were taking place. And people were hurt. And so we tried to address it over a number of, really, frankly, years. And then in the, the last few months. And you know, she maintained the whole time. You know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm the one that's doing the right thing. I'm the one that's righteous in this. And so we tried to be patient and had a last meeting. And that was after the meeting. We had told her that she... Uh, was going to be let go from that position. As we sat in that room, the pastor sat at his desk, and I sat in the couch, and they sat in two chairs, and, and there was a lot of screaming going on. At one point, someone got up in the room and started yelling at the pastor and said, make a move, and I'll take the first punch. And that pastor and myself, we sat there and didn't really say very much. He was very gracious and very kind. And she left, and her husband left. There's a sense of, like, when that whole thing happened, who was the one who was approved? Honestly, when I looked at that situation, I saw my pastor, his name was Dean, and I thought, that man walks with the Lord. There was another situation at our church that we had, uh, uh, separate from this, that we had a business meeting very difficult business meeting. We had to let go of a few pastors because it was uh, financially we're having some issues. So that was really his job to stand up in front of the church and tell the church that this was going to have to happen. There was a man who got up in that service. He, he started yelling. He walked down. He was a member of the church, walked down the aisle to the front. We didn't have as good a security as we have here, okay? So this, this probably should have happened. But this man was yelling right there. And he said, I want to say something. 
And I wouldn't say this is typically what we would do, but Pastor Dean stepped back and said, oh, okay, go ahead. You know, you want to say something? He was a longtime member of the church, so he didn't like just a new guy in the church. He got up and he ranted and he raved, raged, and he walked out. And uh, in the end, praise God, that he came back to the church at some point and apologized for that. But what was interesting about that is I, I would say everybody in the church, their level of respect for Dean went really high because he had patience and kindness for this guy. This guy walked out, he ranted and raged, and then that week Pastor Dean met with him, with another, some of us pastors met with him. That guy came back and he said he was sorry. And even in that situation, we saw who was approved. Not just Dean, but also even this man. He, he did what was right. He came back. He knew what he did was wrong. And I think that that's what this text is saying. Is, this is a picture here of metal being refined. It's like God allows the fire of selfish sin to touch souls in the local church. Those who are genuine, they want to be reconciled. They want to reconcile. They want to love. They want to restore or be restored. They endure and they come forth as gold. But there's others who are touched with that same fire. Some enjoy the drama. I mean, some people love drama. They enjoy the drama. Some get mad. Some storm off. They keep their list of wrongs. They hold on to the sins of other people. And it proves what their heart is truly like. And I guarantee you, if you're in this room and you're going to be with us for the next couple of years, there are going to be problems that are going to come up. You're going to have someone, and it might even be me, I hope not, Lord willing, but you might have someone that maybe doesn't make you feel the greatest. You might be tempted to be selfish. You might be tempted to be angry. The question is, though, how are we going to deal with that? When the fire of that problem touches your, your soul, will you be approved? Will you be seen to be an authentic Christian who wants to reconcile? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You who are spiritual, you who are walking in the Spirit, what are we to do? You are to what? To restore such a one. That's what God has called us to do. Now, I could say this in complete honesty and with joy. As far as I know, the members of this church are authentic. We met with two men, the elders did, uh, I guess it was last week or the week before that. And on Monday, they helped evaluate us as elders and how we're making decisions. And it was a really, I think, healthy time for us just to kind of lay out what we're doing as a church and for these, uh, these men who are pastors to just help us think through things. And then Tuesday was kind of my turn where I just laid out some things for those guys um, that I wanted them to think through and just kind of help me as well. And, and one of the things that was really interesting coming out of that was these men were asking about our church and our unity, and we said that we have a very sweet church who are unified. And these men go all around the country, and they're dealing with church after church, and you know what they're mostly dealing with? It's people who are at war. And church, what a blessing it is to be in a place right now where I don't, as far as I know, I'm not looking at anyone that hates me right now, <laughs> right? There's a unity, and it's such a blessing. John said in 1 John, it wrote 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest 
that they were not alone. And when someone splinters and leaves, that grieves us, right? But we know it's going to happen. And that's one way God refines his church. So the Lord's table is like this checkup that asks us, do we have any problems with other people? But it's not just the negative. It's actually the positive. Like, okay, are we also loving each other? So we look around. Are we praying for each other? Are we caring for one another? Are we committed to one another? That's why one of our, you look in the lobby, you'll see on our vision statement that we are committed group, committed to one another. That means we're a unified membership that serves one another. And how do we picture that? We picture that unity with the Lord's table. So the church of Corinth, they were divided. What did that look like? Look down in verse 20. What did it look like for them to be divided? Well, they were selfish. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk, and all they're caring about is themselves. So here you have this diverse church. I mean, there's, there's free and there's slaves, there's men, there's women, there's rich and there's poor, there's Jewish, there's Roman. So it was diverse. And when they gathered, they splintered off into their own groups. They went to their cliques those groups that they were most comfortable with. You know, that's easy for us to do, isn't it? Because we like to be comfortable. You know, when we're selfish, we like to have comfort, right? It's hard to step outside of that and maybe talk to someone or meet someone that maybe is not, doesn't have a similar background that we have. And that's what, that was this church right here. Not only did they just hang out with those people, but they withheld fellowship from the other people. When they part, partook of the Lord's table, the well-to-do people kind of had their food, and they were saying, like, this is our food, and you who aren't so well-to-do, you can come later, and you're not going to eat, and so much so that people actually were leaving hungry, and some of the people who were selfish were actually leaving drunk. Look at verse 21. Notice this selfish unity. When I say unity, I mean they're unified to themselves. Verse 21, each goes ahead with his, and what's the next word? His own meal. It's my food, my friends, my church, my, my, oh my. And isn't it easy? Isn't it easy to be selfish? I, my flesh, love myself. Isn't that true? Think about what that looks like. I don't want to give up my time. I don't want to mess up my house. I want my evenings. I don't really like that person. I need more me time. I deserve to be recognized. What's in it for me? How can I be served? I'm not getting out what I want. That's mine. That's not fair. Why don't people reach out to me? Why am I always, and all of those thoughts are the thoughts we have when we think selfishly, What's the opposite of selfishness in the church? You know what it is? It's the Lord's table, right? That's right. It's the Lord's table, which symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ. You see, Christ gave up his life for us. Christ loved his church, and he gave up his rights. He surrendered his life for the glory of God and for our good. And so you have this, this, 
this competing mindset, this attitude that says it's mine versus it's the Lord's. My life is not my own. This table is not my own. This church isn't even my own. It's the Lord's. Notice that in verse number 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. That word Lord's is a possessive adjective. It's only found one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Revelation 1.10, when Sunday is called the Lord's Day. So Sunday is the Lord's Day, so therefore we gather to worship him. This meal is the Lord's as well. And contrast that then with the next verse, verse 21, for in eating, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Who owns the church? It's God. And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so what Paul is calling us to do is to gather around this table and to look out and to look out with love and ask, am I loving the church? Am I unified in love? So we are to look around and unify. We are to look back and remember. Just so you know, only doing two points this morning. Look back and remember and proclaim the Lord's substitutionary death. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So Paul reminds the church that the Lord's table originated with the Lord. But wait, think about that. Because the night that he was betrayed, when he did that meal, it was a Passover meal. I mean, Thousands of other families and individuals and groups, I should say, around Jerusalem were celebrating this meal. I mean, for centuries, Israelite families gathered around a table for that meal. They read scripture. They had bread. They have wine. They remembered freedom, just like they were doing on that night. So what made this meal, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, what made this meal different? Well, verse 24 tells us. Verse 24, and when he, that's Jesus, had given thanks, and that's what they did in that meal, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. So in the other Passover meals, that unleavened bread, that matzah, that bread represented other things. It represented freedom. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 39, the Bible says that Israel made unleavened bread and why did they have to make it unleavened? Because they were getting out of there, right? They were being freed by the Lord so they could go into the promised land. So they're being freed from slavery. So that bread represented freedom. We're free now. Also, that bread represented life. Literally, you eat the bread and it gives you life. And they, as the Jewish people, the Israelite people, were being freed from Egypt and they were going to have a new life in the promised land. So the bread represented freedom and life. But on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he took the bread and he gave it a new meaning. 
He said, this bread now pictures my body, my body given over for you. And it's through the suffering and the death of his body that he would give us freedom, not from slavery in Egypt, but freedom from sin. It's through the suffering and death of his body that we would have life, not life in the promised land, but new life in Christ, eternal life with God. Jesus passed around this bread, and he said, this is my body. It's a picture of my body given for you. And notice that for you there. For you, verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. So important. That word for is a preposition that speaks of in the place of. Jesus was our substitute. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. In the Old Testament, a priest would put a lamb on the altar. He would put his hand on the head of that lamb. He would cut the lamb. The blood would be poured out for the sins of the people. And Jesus, as the high priest, he climbed onto the altar of the cross. He was sacrificed for our sins. So as we gather as a church, we think about Jesus' substitutionary death for us. On August 16th, 1987, there was a plane taking off from Detroit, a Northwest Airlines flight, And as it was taking off, it was rocketing off the runway about 40 feet in the air, and it lost its lift. It smashed into a rental car office. It bounced off of that, crashed onto a road, slid, broke apart, burst into flames, and rolled to a stop at the I-94 overpass. And that accident killed 155 people. It was tragic. But at the crash site, something happened. It was remarkable. They found this girl there, Cecilia, among the wreckage. And when the rescuers showed up, they didn't even believe that she was a part of the, the plane accident. She thought maybe, they thought maybe she walked from a neighborhood or off the street somewhere. But they found out that, no, she was in that plane. Everyone else had passed. And so they couldn't figure out what had happened. And then they figured out the answer to the puzzle. When the plane didn't get lift, Cecilia's mother unbuckled herself. She wrapped her arms and her body around Cecilia, and somehow she strapped herself to her daughter. And she held on to her. And her her mother's body protected Cecilia from that glass and that metal and that fire. You could say her love glued that mother to her daughter. That mother offered up her body for her daughter. In love, she saved her. And church, that is a substitutionary sacrifice. And like that child was doomed to die, each person in this room, in this world, is doomed to die. A far worse fate were doomed to die separated from God forever in hell. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says that Christ loved the church 
and he gave himself up for her. And it's like on that cross, Jesus' body was given over in our place. He took hell upon himself. He died for us. So when we gather around the Lord's table, we remember his death. We thank him for giving up, offering up his body as a sacrifice. And then verse 25, we also take the cup in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is a promise. It's a personal contract God makes with those who believe the gospel that God makes that with those who believe in Jesus Christ and it's the blood of Jesus that purchased that contract, that covenant with us. And so this new covenant, it promises all who believe are saved. You're, You're made into a new creation. You're given a new heart. You're forgiven of all your sins. You're in the family of God. That's the new covenant. And when Jesus hung on that cross, his blood poured out. And that blood Pouring out, paid for our sin. 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. So as we come to this table, we eat the bread, we, we drink the juice, and we remember that he gave up his life for us. Notice verse 24. We do this as... A memorial. It's to remember. Verse 24, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Then he commands us, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, this is the cup. Uh, sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup and the bread remind us of Christ's sacrificial death in our place. So when we come to the table, we look back, you could say it that way. We look back at what Christ has done for us. We also proclaim that to each other. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's like we are preaching the gospel to each other. When when we look at each other and we're eating that bread and drinking that juice, it's like we're saying, Jesus died for me. He died for you. Praise the Lord. We're not going to go through our other two points here. But as we transition into a time where we're going to partake of the Lord's table, I want us to think through what Christ wants us to do at this moment. And just think through the first point. We are to gather together and gather in unity. And to look around. I mean, look around at each other. These are the people that you've committed to love and to be a part of and to pray for and disciple. These are those in your church family. So as we gather together, I think it's important for us to just think about those around us and pray for them, love them. I think, parents, as you look around, Look at your little row there and those little kids. I think it's important for you to pass on the seriousness of this. This is a very somber, this is a very reverent time when we take the Lord's table. I don't think it's appropriate for children to take the Lord's table, first of all, who aren't believers. 
That should be obvious. But even I think you should be very discerning parents about when your kids can take the Lord's table. Make sure you prepare them before you come to a service. I mean, pretty much we do it the last Sunday of every month, so that should be a, a sign to you. But also, you should prepare them to think about it before they come so that they're not asking during it, why are we doing this? You can kind of prepare their mind. I personally think it's best to wait for a child to take the Lord's table until they are baptized, until they take that step of obedience. I don't think it's necessarily a biblical command, but that's just something to think about. But let's pass on the seriousness of this to our children. Second, as we gather as the Lord's church, let's, let's remember and proclaim the Lord's death. I think it's good for us to think through how we do that when we are doing this as a church. We will have a time of prayer. The time of prayer isn't for us just to be silent and just to hear silence or the music. It's for us to pray, for us to, to probably, physically, you know, probably mentally put our mind upon Jesus. Think about God. Praise God for sending Jesus. Think about Jesus and thank him for coming. And try to maybe think about a verse. Sometimes when I'm doing that and I'm trying to think about communion, I think about maybe a verse like John 3.16 or another verse. I'm trying to, to meditate on that. Sometimes I try to think through what happened to Jesus while he was suffering, when he was on the cross. What did he say? So we try to put our mind upon the truth of the atonement and what took place there on that cross. And also just thanking Jesus. Thank you, Jesus for your work for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for taking away my sin. Usually, like this morning, we'll sing. And I know that's not really something typical in a lot of churches. I think it's a really helpful thing. Number one, it puts our minds upon the Lord and what he did for us. But also, do you notice in this verse, in verse 26, he said that we're to proclaim the Lord's death. I think this is a way for us, as we're about to partake of the Lord's table, to together proclaim the gospel. Yesterday I was saying I, I preached at a place uh, that most of the people were unbelievers in there. And so we had a time when we were singing. And what I realized in there, Isabel played the violin, and I was leading the singing. And I realized that there was probably only a handful of people that knew those songs. And, uh, and I realized that I'm singing out the praises to the Lord for what he did for us. But you know, people, not only did they not know those songs, but you know, songs like Great Is Thy Faithfulness, songs like that. I mean, most people probably know those songs. But actually, it probably wasn't true for them. They probably didn't believe that. And I was thinking after that time, I thought, what a great opportunity to tell people about Christ for them to see it. I can't wait to go tomorrow to our church and sing with our church and hear all these voices unite in proclaiming the gospel. And so we're proclaiming the gospel. And the last two, we're just going to look at these next time. We're to look up. Think about glory. Think about those loved ones that you know that are in glory with Christ and just long for Christ's return. And then last, we are, we are to look within and examine ourselves. The Lord's table is for believers. If you're not a believer, then we would ask you to enjoy the music, think about the words, but, but not to partake of the elements. If you are a believer, if you're not walking with the Lord, we would ask for you to refrain as well. And, and our desire in that is that you would be reconciled to the Lord or to whoever you have an issue with. As believers, this is a time of great joy. This is a time where we think and remember and reflect upon what Christ has done for us. Let's pray.